0: Now I find it interesting this morning as we go back into Matthew and pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, particularly after we have just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, celebrated Easter, uh, we're kind of going back and going to be rebuilding back to Easter again. I posed this question a couple of times earlier this week. Who says we can't celebrate Easter more than once a year? Uh, it's going to be down a couple a couple months down the road, but we're going to get back to that. The greatest day in the history of the world, and so we're going to be looking at it in a much more detailed way as we uh, go in that direction. Now, if you remember, Jesus and his disciples in a great multitude, this is back uh, Palm Sunday uh, when we were... Talking about this, they were beginning, just beginning, their trip up the mountain to Jerusalem, heading towards the Passover, and there was a multitude w- with Jesus. His disciples there with were with him, and Jesus had just predicted how he was going to be suffering there, predicted how he was going to die, and then in three days how he was going to be raised again. And immediately after that exchange, we read in Matthew chapter twenty, verses twenty to twenty-eight, this morning. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This morning I want to talk about how to be great in the kingdom. Now, theoretically, this should kind of fall into line with all the books and articles that have been written about how to have success, how to get ahead, how to better yourself, 12 Steps to Success, books on pushing yourself further, promoting yourself, all of which have developed a generation now with a great sense of entitlement. I deserve more. I deserve better. And those of you who have done better are doing well, You deserve less because I deserve more. It's interesting that during the time of the writing of the New Testament, particularly in the Roman Empire, pride was exalted as a virtue, and humility was looked down as a weakness. And it eventually resulted in the demise of the Roman Empire. They should have read Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit Before fall, but you know, today in our own society, we're kind of repeating history, are we not? And it may well be one of the marks of the demise of our own society, just as it was the demise of the Roman society. Why? Because no society can ever survive pride run amuck. The reason is that all of society depends on relationships. That's how God created us. Meaningful, ongoing, supportive relationships. When a mass of people are all committed to themselves, themselves alone, built into that is a disintegration of relationships. And systematically, that's exactly what's happening. All relationships in our society are falling, falling apart. Friendships. Work relationships, political relationships, and our homes and our families. That's actually one of the main tenets of the BLM movement to destroy nuclear families. You can read that in in their manifesto. It, it stated that clearly. All social interrelationship is at a stress point in our country. We see that everywhere, every day. Because everybody is screaming for their own rights at the expense oftentimes of others. This is nothing new. And unfortunately, it's nothing new in the church in general either. This self-promotion, self-esteem, pride movement has found its way into Christianity. And people have twisted the truth of, of Scripture to promote pride and self-esteem and self-glory and self-promotion, of self self-image building. And we live in a Christianity now that, that thinks God's only design for us is to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous and happy and satisfied and fulfilled. After all, that's what the abundant life is all about, isn't it? If you're really walking with the Lord, He's going to bless you with all this stuff. I'm being facetious, of course. But we really actually know very little about sacrifice. We know very little about true pain and suffering. All we want to do is to eliminate all that. We don't like that, so we want to eliminate that because it's easy to fall into the trap of believing that those are signs. If you're suffering, those are the signs of spiritual weakness or a lack of spiritual maturity. If you're strong in Christ, you don't have to experience any, any of that. But the Bible is very clear about these things. In Proverbs 21, verse 4, we read that a proud heart produces sin. In Proverbs 16, 5, we read, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. <laughs> Those are strong terms. In fact, pride in Romans 1:30 is a mark of people with depraved minds. And they'll be punished, Malachi says in chapter 4, verse 1. And on the other hand, humility is a virtue in the Bible, and it's exalted as a virtue, and we all understand that biblically, and, and perhaps we understand that intellectually, but we need to understand that in terms of our experience as well. There's a great verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that says, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk how? Humbly before the Lord. Proverbs 15, says humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. The lesson all the way through the Scripture is that, that the Lord lifts up those who are humble. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 12 that we are to put on humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says that we are to be clothed with humility. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2 says we are to walk in Humility. Humility comes before honor. If you ever want glory from God, it comes by means of humility. And from this passage that we read this morning, it's obvious that the disciples needed a good, strong teaching on that point. Because we read how the mother of Zebedee's sons asked Jesus a favor. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand, the left hand, when you come into the kingdom. Now, did this request just come out of the blue? Who would have thought to ask something like that? Well, you'll probably remember a conversation just a little bit earlier in chapter 19 that Jesus had with a rich young ruler. And he told the rich young ruler that if if you're not willing to give up everything and follow me, you cannot enter into the kingdom. And then you'll remember that the disciples, they had basically given up everything and followed Jesus. And so they said, so... What can we then expect? And Jesus gave them an answer that was beyond expectation. He said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits in his glorious throne, okay? You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Wow. They're not going to be on 12 thrones. That had to be running through their minds. Think of the possibilities. I mean, they had been talking about that with their families. Uh, th- th- these two men were certainly talking, about, talking uh, to their mom about it, James and John, with their mother. That stuck in their minds like glue, and they couldn't let that one go. When Jesus was, predict- was predicting his sufferings and his death on the way up to Jerusalem, they didn't go- get it. That-, that went right over the head. They-, they were still stuck on the glory. They were stuck on the reigning in the kingdom. They didn't catch the part about the suffering. They never had up to that point. And Jesus had done a lot of teaching on it. Someone once wrote, Oh, the treachery of the human heart. Selfishness is incurable in this life. It can only be brought under control. It can't be eliminated. 2,000 years later, we still suffer from the same kind of selfishness that the disciples suffered from. They should have understood their service to Christ to be a service of love without any thought of receiving anything. But at that point, it wasn't for them, and it wasn't only James and John. It wasn't, we can't just get down on James and John and their mom. Even after Jesus taught them this lesson in chapter 20, later on when they were in the upper room, when he was telling them that one of you guys are going to betray me, and they're sitting there, well, who could that be? Who's that, who's that going to be? In the midst of that, Scripture says they, they started arguing among each other, trying to figure out who, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Suffering for Jesus doesn't come naturally. To us. Augustine, writing in his book entitled The City of God, said this Two cities have been formed by two loves the earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. As we look at our passage this morning, I want to tackle this concept of how to be great in the kingdom. But the first five verses in this story really give us, uh, we we can pull out of it, three wrong or worldly ways to seek greatness. Um, and, And they're not adaptable into God's kingdom. You remember Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's very different. While well, the principles for gaining the world's kingdom do not work in his kingdom. So here are the ways not to be great in the kingdom. Number one is by a political power play. The old adage, it's all about who you know, comes to mind. And it's prevalent in our workplaces, it's prevalent in politics, and even in church circles, within families. And we see this happening in our passage here starting in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons knee and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Now, who are the sons of Zebedee? James and John. The Gospel of Mark 10 actually uh, Gospel chapter 10 actually names them specifically. Now, you remember that this request comes immediately after Jesus just poured out his heart about his sufferings and all that he was going to be going through as he was going to be arriving in Jerusalem. But rather than thinking about him, they were all thinking about themselves. And Jesus said, what is it you want? I think he probably knew. Jesus knows everything. And their mother said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now that was a very proud political power play. They wanted the chief place in the kingdom. They're seeking self-glory, they're seeking promotion, they're seeking honor, they're seeking esteem, they're they're seeking power. It was a power play based on connections. It's all about who you know. And it wasn't just that these two guys knew Jesus, all 12 of them knew Jesus. Let me explain what was going on here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and John tell us in their gospel accounts that when Jesus was crucified, there were three women that were there watching the situation from below the cross. And they give us the names of these women. Matthew says there is Mary Magdalene, there is Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Okay, the same, same woman now that is requesting this of Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, we find the name of mother, the mother of Zebedee's sons, and he names her as Salome. So it's Salome now that is making this request to Jesus. Then in the Gospel of John, if you want to look it up sometime, it tells us that Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Isn't that Interesting. So James and John were Jesus' cousins because their mom, Salome, was Jesus' aunt, Aunt Salome. And in, in, it's, it's all in the family, right? It's all in who you know. Family politics, they were playing on the affections of Jesus to the family, I believe here. She came and bowed down before him, and in an act of worship, an act of humility, and I put air quotes around those, um, those terms, because Mark tells us that even before they told him what they wanted, listen, they said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Seriously? Talk about Audacity. Jesus, give us carte blanche. Give us a sign, blank check. But Jesus rejects those political power plays. He rejects it totally. God cannot be influenced by others. That is not how one arrives at a place of blessing and honor in the kingdom. But that does lead us to the second way not to be great, and I I'd name that audacious ambition. This comes out in Jesus' answer and then the disciples' response to the question that James and John's mother asked. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Jesus said, you guys have have no clue what you just asked. No clue about it. You're asking for glory, but you don't realize that the path to glory is suffering. He's saying you don't get it yet. You see, the highest places of glory are reserved for those who go through the deepest places of suffering. and That's why Jesus says you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus suffered humiliation to the point of the worst possible death, and that was death on the cross. Therefore, Paul says, God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus is saying, if you want to look at the exalted place, prepare yourself for the suffering. Can you drink the cup? What does that mean? It's an Old Testament idiom that means to take everything in, to drink to the last drop, to drink drink the cup dry. You know, there there used to be an old Maxwell House uh, coffee commercial. Remember that? Good to the last drop. Jesus is asking them if they think they will be able to suffer to the degree that he will to drink the cup to the last drop. And Isaiah 51 verse 17 talks about those who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs. Christ drank all of that. So he asks them if they are able to drink the whole thing. It's a bitter cup, the cup of suffering that he is referring to here. Then the audacity of their request comes out in their response. We can. Yeah, no problem. You remember what happened when Jesus was finally arrested? They ran. Peter said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be there. He denied him three times. But Jesus, full of grace and mercy, even understanding all this ahead of time, knew that in actuality they would suffer. And very gently Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. And they did. The time came when they were faithful. And it turns out that James, one of these two, Acts chapter 12, became the first martyr stoned to death. And John was faithful as well, and he was the first living martyr as he was uh, exiled to the island of Patmos to spend the rest of his life. So Jesus said, you will suffer, and they did, and the Holy Spirit came upon them at the time that they needed so they could endure that suffering, and he does the same thing for us as well. As far as sitting on the right and left hand, he said, hey, that's out of my hands, To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. He's the one passing out the rewards. He's the one who gives the ultimate glory. And it's his decision to whoever whoever he has prepared those for. And we're going to leave that verse just by itself because it's the Father's choice. And we shouldn't be seeking after that anyway. Then verse 24 says, When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Why? Because they couldn't believe the audacity of them for asking this? Was it because they they all knew they shouldn't be asking about something like that? Um, Or was it because they thought they were being really insensitive when Jesus was talking about his sufferings, for goodness sake? No, I don't think it was for any of those reasons. I think it was because James and John asked Jesus first before they could ask him. They were all thinking the same thing. Even at the Last Supper, as we mentioned, they were still arguing about, arguing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And this is kind of where Jesus then teaches them about the abusive power and authority that is often used for greatness. In verse 25, he says, Jesus called them together. Okay, Come on together, guys. Let's talk a minute. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. The word used here for lording it over someone refers to a dominant dictatorship. In many countries in the world, this is how power and greatness is sought. We've seen it throughout history. Antiochus, Epiphanes, the Caesars, the Hitlers, the Pharaohs of Egypt, the, uh, the Herods, the Pilots, the the um, the, the, the Shahs. King Jung, uh, Kim Jong un of North Korea, the supreme leader is what he's called. They think they can get their greatness by lording it over, by being a dictator. But that's actually a style of leadership you find in a lot of places. We find it in politics, we find it in businesses, we actually find it in some churches, where one person feels that they can rule the church. It could be the pastor. It doesn't always have to be the pastor. I've seen where a, uh, a, a wealthy man in, in a church, he's got his thumb on the pastor and the congregation. No decisions are made unless he says, okay. That's why 1 Peter 5.3, talking about the characteristics of godly elders, says that they should not lord it over. Same word. They should not lord it over those entrusted to them, but being examples to the flock that's not the way it's done in the kingdom. Not only does a ruler dominate them, but then he gives authority to some high officials who, who are designated for various areas to, to govern. And then they follow the example of the ruler. And Jesus says that those high officials then exercise authority over them. Well, you may say, well, well what's wrong with that? If, if you've been given the title and the authority of a, uh, of a ruler... Uh, Why wouldn't you exercise authority? You're supposed to exercise authority. But the Greek phrase that Jesus uses here is to bring someone under one's power and to subdue them. They abuse their power. So Jesus' lesson to the disciples and their mothers is that before honor, there's humility. Before the crown, you've got to drink the cup. The way to be exalted is by the way of humility. Humility. It's not seeking to be great. It's not seeking to be lifted up and to be, be honored, nor will it be by aggr- being aggressive and dominant. Rather, it's seeking to know God, to humbly walk with him that allows God, then to lift you, allows God then to lift you up. That's his way. The great men and women in God's kingdom have always been those whose lives were marked by humble service. Reread Hebrews chapter 3 sometime. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and many others were all considered great heroes of the, uh, of the Old Testament because of their humble service. And that takes us to the last few verses here, verses 26 to 28, which instruct us then on how we can be great in the kingdom. And he gives us an exhortation, and then he gives us an example. And his exhortation starts in verse twenty-six. He starts by saying, "Not so with you." Okay, everything that we just talked about, he says, "That's how it works in my king, um, in my kingdom." He says, "Excuse me, that's not how it works in my kingdom. Forget about it, right?" Everything is flipped upside down in my king- kingdom. The opposite is true. John 18, 36. Remember, my kingdom is not of this world. It's different. Just the opposite. A great Lutheran commentator by the name of Lenski once wrote The great men are sitting, excuse me, the great men are not sitting on top of lesser men, they are bearing lesser men on their backs. And he's right. And Jesus continues in verse 26. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you... Huh. Ever thought about that? That doesn't really compute here. It kind of flies in the face of all of his other teachings, doesn't it? I thought we weren't supposed to be looking to be great. I thought we were supposed to be seeking to be humble. Is he saying that it's actually okay to seek greatness? Is it okay to seek reward, to seek to be a leader? Is it okay to seek exaltation? Yes, actually. The difference is the type of ambition. What are you seeking it for? What is your motivation? You see, Jesus never promotes sinful ambition. That's what Jesus had dealt with with James and John. But he actually reaffirmed that it wasn't wrong to seek to be great; it was only wrong to seek it for the wrong reason. Now, bear with me, and don't, 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 don't jump to wrong conclusions here. Even John said in Second John one eight, "Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully." Interesting. There are rewards. And Paul said, run that you may win. That's ambition. That's being focused on the goal and the prize at the end. And he's ta- not talking about salvation. You wouldn't be running the race if you weren't saved already. There's something else that he, you're, he's running for. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. We're going to get something. And John reminds us in the last chapter of the whole Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, where Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Huh. There are rewards involved. But we need to seek greatness On God's terms and we need to seek it on the path which he has ordained and that is a path of suffering that kind of helps us deal a little bit more honestly perhaps with this issue of seeking greatness because a path to glory is a path of suffering it's a path of sacrifice is a path of slavery is a path of sacrificial selfish uh, selfless service and we do it because we love him We do it because out of gratitude for rescuing us from the eternal punishment that we deserved. You know, there are those who seek greatness by trying to avoid suffering. Then there are those who seek greatness because of suffering. I have suffered so much, I want to pat on the back. I want to say, attaboy, I want to get the praises now for all the suffering that I've gone through. Paul could have done that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 24, he says, Five times I received from the Jews a forty lashes minus one. Can you imagine that? We, we, we talk a lot about Jesus receiving those thirty-nine lashes. Paul received them five times. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and day in the open sea, I have been constantly on the move, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger of the sea, in danger from false believers. And on and on he goes, I have been suffering. And he could have sought both sympathy and praise. But instead in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 he says this about how he wanted people to think about him this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the ministries God has revealed servants of Christ this is the word for servants here this is not the Greek word that we often hear about doulos that usually that Paul often actually re, uh, refers to himself as, as, as a bond slave. Here he uses the word huperetes, servant, slave, yes, but referring to a galley slave on a ship with three rows of oars. It refers literally, literally to an under rower or a subordinate rower. These ships, and you'll see a picture there, often have three rows of oars, And they would have three rows of slaves, one up on the top deck and two below. And he's saying, I'm not looking for glory. I'm not looking for honor. I just want to be found faithful to what God has called me to And he goes on there in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. It's the Lord who judges me. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. In other words, only God can read motives, and he does it very well. 1 Corinthians ten thirty one says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, what? For the glory of God. From the most mundane things to the most extravagant things, do it all to the glory of God. That needs to be, that needs to be the motivation of our hearts. As we serve and suffer for the Lord in humility, it's all done for the glory of God. Now look at verse the end of verse 26, because at the end of verse 26, he says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. There's the path. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Now the word for servant here is very interesting. It's different from the other two that we've actually talked about uh, a little bit. The word used here is diakonos, diakonos, and we get our word deacon from that. It refers to one who executes the commands of another, especially of a master. It refers to the servant of a king. It wasn't a religious term at the time. Um, we now—that's usually the only time that we heard we, we hear the word deacon—is in the church setting. But in the time of the New Testament, it was actually a, just a secular word, and it had to do with low menial service. You would hire a deacon. Clean up your yard, take out your trash, serve your meal, collect the garbage, do some kind of menial job. In India, when my wife and I were there, when we were setting up our business, we were told that we had to hire a peon, the word they use. Got to go hire a peon to wash your floors, uh, wipe off the whiteboards, uh, make your tea and things of that sort. And we kind of said, excuse me? That's really derogatory. But it wasn't. That was the term they were using because of the caste system. There was, just, there was a lower caste. N- nobody above that caste would deign to wash the floors and do these other things. And this was what they did. And we paid a fair wage. Uh, probably better than a fair wage uh, to this person that we hired. But that that's, that was the kind of thing. So it wasn't a dishonoring term, the word diakonos. It wasn't a dishonoring term. It was just a low term in terms of social strata, referring to someone who simply serves, that did menial jobs, that probably didn't have a lot of education, didn't have a lot of skills. So Diakonas was then taken out of secular culture and was sanctified, if you will, and was made the most dominant word in the New Testament to speak of service of Christians. Isn't that interesting? The word's used more than 50 times in reference to the service of Christians. Lowly service. God is looking for those who come to serve. That's the spirit that he wants. If you want to see someone who is great in the kingdom, look to see how they serve. That was Paul's concept when he referred to himself as a galley slave who did nothing but being chained to some kind of post, pulled an oar in the darkness of the hull of a ship. Paul says, may it be said of me that I am a third-level galley slave under rower of Christ. That's how he wanted to be considered. Oswald Sanders, in his book entitled Spiritual Leadership, quotes William Law as saying this, let every day be a day of humility. Condescend to all the weaknesses and infirmities of your fellow creatures. Cover their frailties, love their excellencies, encourage their virtues, relieve their wants, rejoice in their prosperities, show compassion in their distress, receive their friendship, overlook their unkindness, forgive their malice. Be a servant of servants and condescend to do the lowliest offices of the lowest of mankind. He also quotes Samuel Bringle, who wrote in his diary, The axe cannot boast of the trees that it, it cuts down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. He says, "Oh, that I may never lose sight of this." Then, verse twenty-seven, in our passage basically reiterates the same thing, but even more to the point. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. That's where Paul, uh, Christ, used the word "doulos," the bond slave, one purchased, bought, and owned. In the New Testament times slavery was an ongoing practice, so the disciples were very aware um of what that meant. They knew what it was to see slaves whipped and beaten. They 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 knew what it was to serve in terrible kind of conditions that many of them served in. They they, they got that. They they understood, they could understand that example. So for them then this became a very graphic example of how committed they need to be in serving one another and serving God. Paul looked at his life in the same way. He knew that his life was not his own and that his master was in charge. In fact, he says in Romans 14, 8, If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. That was his attitude. He did it so the Lord might be glorified. Even he himself was praised and honored. He always passed that praise back on to the Lord. He didn't want it himself. Oswald Sanders again writes, Scars are the authentic marks of faithful discipleship. Scars are the authentic marks of faithful discipleship. Amy Carmichael once wrote a poem called, Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land, I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as a master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? cost of greatness is humble, selfless, at times suffering service. That brings with it many scars. Not what the world's looking for. A Bible commentator by the name of William Barclay put it rather well when he said this, The world may assess a man's greatness by the number of people whom he controls or who are at his beck and call or by his intellectual standing and his academic eminence or by the number of committees of which he is a member or by the size of his bank balance and the material possessions which he has amassed, but in the assessment of Jesus Christ, these things are irrelevant." but what is relevant is a person's humility. We need to ask ourselves a question, what sacrifice do I make to serve Christ? What sacrifice? What pain? So Jesus' exhortation is, is very clear. He then ends with his own example as we close up this morning in verse 28. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. There's our example. It's Christ himself. We say we love Christ and we abide in Christ. We, we like some of those words. We like some of those verses. 1 well, J- John said, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Jesus' life was completely abandoned as an act of humble service. Selfless Service for others. He did not consider equality with God to be something used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ went through the greatest humiliation ever. God became man, the sovereign of the universe, the sovereign of all eternity came to be a victim of sin, the greatest humiliation of all. And It says his service went to the ultimate extreme at the end of that verse 28, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, he didn't only die just to be a good example. He died as a ransom. You know, it's interesting that We're being introduced for the very first time in the New Testament to the redemption work of Christ, the substitutionary redeeming act on the cross. The word ransom used here is Luthron. It's only used twice, only twice in the New Testament. Luthron is the price of the release of a slave. If you have a slave who wanted his freedom, Luthron was whatever price it was to free him. Folks, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to death. We were slaves to Satan. We were slaves to flesh. We talked about that last week, that old sinful, selfish flesh nature. We were slaves to the world and to hell, but Christ paid the Luthron to release us from that. That's the concept of being redeemed. That's what we were talking about last Sunday in Colossians 2. By this Luthron that Jesus paid, he has put off that sinful nature of ours. He has stripped it away, and He has cast it away. And in His place, He has given us a new nature, His nature. And that nature, as we're seeing today, consists of humility and servanthood. Though this was the first mention of the concept of redemption, it became a major theme throughout the New Testament. It's mentioned over 80 times. And among those times is 1 Peter 1.18. Listen, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lutron, a lamb without blemish or defect. So how are we to be great in the kingdom of God? We are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That mindset has to be transformed to come in line with that new nature that he has given to us. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Let me close with this quote from one commentator who said this. If your spiritual life is on target... If your spiritual life is on target, then you will seek that eternal weight of glory and you will desire it with all of your heart, which will cause you to serve Christ with a whole heart and to take the path, even though it means pain and suffering, that brings about that eternal weight of glory. kind of boils down to obeying the greatest commandments that Jesus gives. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Selfless, humble service. Father, this morning, this is not easy. We are proud people. It doesn't come naturally naturally to humble ourselves. But Father, with the power of your Holy Spirit working in us by giving our lives over to you, by loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, you then transform our minds, you transform our hearts, you transform our desires. And I pray, Father, that you would, if we have not gotten to that point each day, I think we need to work on that a little bit more, bring us down into humility to serve you to allow your name to be glorified, to touch other people's lives. Let them see Christ in us. Father, this morning we praise you. We lift your names up. In Jesus' name, amen.